we come this Lord's Day to continue our study in the God of all comforts. Now, we've previously said that Scripture teaches us that God comforts His people. The principal manner in which God's comfort is displayed is that He takes away our sin. He pardons our iniquities. He clothes us in His righteousness. And He thereby makes peace with us forever. Jesus healed many helpless people. He even raised some from the dead. But in all of that, the healing was but a foretaste of the full comfort of God for us through Christ. Christ intended far greater things. The saving of His people from their sins. Ultimately, that will fix everything. Our sins are the ultimate source of all of our troubles and sicknesses and heartaches and death itself. But Christ paid the penalty of justice for His people's sins so that He might raise us up one day at the resurrection. Then all of our sinning and sighing will be over forever. Jesus showed remarkable sympathy for His beloved ones. No greater example exists than His sadness over the death of His dear friend Lazarus. Jesus groaned in His spirit when He saw His friends weeping at the death of Lazarus. Jesus wept in front of them and they knew that He had loved Lazarus. But the Lord's people had such a deficient grasp of the power of Christ over death. They thought that His powers were limited to healing living people. But once death took hold, Christ could really do nothing more. Not only so, but Lazarus had been dead for four days. Corruption had set in and his corpse had begun to rot, but the glory of God was about to be revealed. Jesus would show his people that he has complete mastery over death itself. And so Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead and many believed on him after that. However, Jesus described the far deeper problem for his lost people who were faint and lost like sheep without a shepherd. This too moved him to compassion for them. What was needed from a human perspective was more faithful believers to preach the gospel of salvation by Christ to these lost people. In this observation, Jesus was redirecting His disciples away from a focus on mere physical sickness to the root of the problem. Spiritual lostness and the wandering of sinful men away from God through disobedience. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to His own way. But in Christ's compassion, He appropriates to Himself as Messiah the promises of Ezekiel 34. There the priests and religious leaders are excoriated for being unfaithful shepherds who have not sought out the lost sheep of Israel or bound up their wounds or fed them or protected them from the wild beasts. But God then promises He will gather His lost sheep and do the duties of a shepherd to His sheep Better still, God promises He will appoint Messiah to be that one faithful, good shepherd of the Lord's flock to seek them out, to rescue them, and to restore them to peace and safety. This compassion is stark. Rather than blame His people for their disobedience and lostness, the good shepherd takes upon himself the exclusive responsibility to restore them and to keep them. Even more explicitly in John 10, Jesus explains how He will save His sheep. He will lay down His life for them. These sheep are only the ones His Father has given Him. Nobody can believe on Jesus that has not been given Him by the Father. All these sheep rescued by Jesus can and will never perish. 
No amount of physical miracles can save the Lord's lost people because it is sin that is our root problem. He was despised and we esteemed Him not. So as Jesus was performing great physical miracles of healing, He intended to do far greater than healing the sick. When the lame man's friends let him down on a litter in front of Jesus while he was teaching, Jesus informed that man that his sins were forgiven him. Here Christ explicitly states man's critical problem, not sickness, not physical deformity, but rather spiritual death by sin. Of course, the scribes sitting there were offended because only God can forgive sin. And so it is, but they refuse to acknowledge that Christ is God manifest in the flesh and therefore He can forgive sin. Jesus underlined His full power by pointing out that it's easy to tell someone their sins are forgiven, for who can tell if it's true? It's harder to raise up a lame man from his bed because everybody can instantly see whether the power changes the man or not. Then Jesus says, So that you can know that I have the power to forgive sin, I say to you, rise up and walk. And the man was healed instantly. Jesus proves He can heal impossible physical sickness and that He can forgive a man's sin also. Just like Isaiah had foretold, Jesus would not merely bear our sicknesses and carry our infirmities when He performed miraculous healings during His ministry, but Jesus would go much further. He would bear our sins away from us in His body as a sacrifice unto God to justify His people and forgive us our crimes against God. By doing so, Christ would bring to His people eternal salvation and everlasting life to all who trust in Him. No wonder just before He went to the cross for us, John's Gospel records this truth. Christ loved us to the end. Now, one of the greatest metaphors God uses to comfort His people, which we touched on last Lord's Day, is that of the shepherd and his sheep. We mostly ourselves are introduced to this in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for Thou art with me. Thy rod and Thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Notice there is in this promise of God being our shepherd and of we being His sheep. There is this promise of provision There is this promise of peace, of still waters. But there is also moral rescue. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. We don't usually think of sheep as having any righteousness. And yet we are men and not sheep. But the metaphor must continue. And it is not just our physical wants that are the main focus of the Lord's people being His sheep, but rather that we might be restored unto Himself in obedience, or that we might be led in paths of righteousness in obedience to the Lord. 
And then there is also a promise of comfort during danger and even in the face of death, a vindication before all of our foes one day, and great joy from the hand of the Good Shepherd, and in the end, everlasting life. Now these are astounding adaptations, are they not, to the metaphor of a shepherd in his sheep. And yet this is how God's Word uses this metaphor. Now, many metaphors of God and His people exist in the Scripture, and that's because none of them can exhaust the truth of God's marvelous dealings with His people. You know, we already read last Lord's Day, Ezekiel 34, where this metaphor of God being the shepherd of His sheep and excoriating those wicked shepherds who had not provided for the sheep, verse 5 and 6, of Ezekiel 34, they were scattered because there is no shepherd and they became meat to all the beasts of the field when they were scattered. My sheep wandered through all the mountains and upon every high hill. Yea, my flock was scattered upon all the face of the earth and none did search or seek after them. Now you might recognize that the sheep shouldn't have gone astray. They shouldn't have wandered away from safety, but they did. And the Lord blames principally the shepherds, the false shepherds, for allowing this to happen. That His people sin, and yet there is a responsibility laid at the feet of the rulers who had been given the care of the sheep and yet had not carried it out in a faithful manner. And then at verse 13, I will bring them out from the people and gather them from the countries and will bring them to their own land and feed them upon the mountains of Israel by the rivers and in all the inhabited places. I will feed them in a good pasture and upon the high mountains of Israel shall their fold be. There shall they lie in a good fold and in a fat pasture shall they feed upon the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock and I will cause them to lie down, saith the Lord God. I will seek that which was lost and bring again that which was driven away and will bind up that which was broken and will strengthen that which was sick. And we'd be wrong, we'd be misunderstanding the metaphor if we take all these just to be literal physical truths and not be pointing to the spiritual parallels of sickness, spiritual sickness, injury by sin, injury by oppression, a failure to trust in the Lord and to rely upon Him, and so forth. A brokenness which must be healed by the Word of God. You see, God has little to say, really, about His sheep's delinquencies during these metaphors. Although He does mention wandering, going astray, helpless without the Good Shepherd, there are delinquencies, but they are couched in the gentlest of terms, you see. They are couched in a comfortable metaphor which describes the sad spiritual lot of the Lord's people as though they are sheep who've gone astray, who've been scattered, who've been victimized by the wild beasts and so forth. So in God's use of this metaphor, we find a kindness and a compassion expressed towards the Lord's people, almost but not quite a passing over, if you will, of the sinfulness of our sin. He uses that phrase, we went astray. 
Now, to be sure, it is a sin to go astray as the Lord's people. As poor sinful men, we ought not to go astray. And yet, isn't it condescending of God to use this tangible, physical metaphor to describe the lostness of the Lord's people? He could have used the metaphor of a wicked servant, and sometimes he does, who's ran away with his master's goods and has been tracked down and beaten severely and dragged back and thrown in prison. He could have used that metaphor. It would have been true, wouldn't it? but it wouldn't have expressed the comfort which the Lord intends to convey regarding His plan to rescue His sheep who have gone astray, to restore them to that place where He delights in them. And so with the kindness, the kindest of words, God brings us back, you see, to the shepherd. At the end of Ezekiel 34, there is this little note pounds all of this together. And ye, my flock, the flock of my pasture, are men, and I am your God, saith the Lord God. The metaphor does not set aside the reality that we are people created in God's image, and that we are responsible, and that we ought not to sin, and that God will hold us accountable for our sin. None of that is overturned by the metaphor. And yet, it is presented in the gentlest of imageries. To be sure, other metaphors use kings and subjects who ought to be obedient but sometimes aren't and are punished for shirking their duties. The fathers and the sons, where the sons are chastised by the fathers, afterwards which the chastisement yields the peaceable fruits of righteousness where the people are described as the younger brethren of the elder brother, where all the inheritance and riches and recognition flow through the elder brother as is his right. And then other imageries and metaphors as Christ is our kinsman redeemer who rescues his helpless, broke, maybe lazy, bad business judgment type brethren who have been sold into captivity and only the kinsman redeemer has the the legal right and the power to redeem them. There are plenty of metaphors that get at other aspects of our relationship to our God. But even in the sheep-shepherd metaphor, God does bring up our fault, our disobedience, that is, that we have not trusted, that we have not obeyed, that we have wandered off And it is interesting how this sheep-shepherd metaphor is brought up in the context of Isaiah 40, which begins with this command that we should comfort the people of God. They should be comforted. We should be spoken comfortably to that our warfare is accomplished, that our iniquity is pardoned. So this comfort of God for His people in pardoning their sin in casting their sin behind His back, in forgiving them all their trespasses, is then associated with this sheep-shepherd metaphor. At verse 10, Behold, the Lord God will come with strong hand, and His arm shall rule for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him, and His work behind Him. He shall feed His flock like a shepherd, 
He shall gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and shall gently lead those that are with young. Here is the Lord's kindness and comfort for his people whose iniquities he has promised to pardon. For we are sinful people and yet he is kindly disposed to us like a shepherd is kindly disposed to the newborn lambs who are so weak they can barely keep up with the flock and with the ewes that are with young that must be led gently because of their precarious physical condition. So the Lord promises to forgive the sin of His people and bring them peace and God's provision and comfort for His flock, for His sheep are connected in this text. And God juxtaposes this metaphor with salvation and imputed righteousness in Jeremiah 23, where we read this text, Woe be unto the pastors, that's the word for shepherd, that destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, saith the Lord. Therefore thus saith the Lord God of Israel against the pastors that feed my people, ye have scattered my flock and driven them away, and have not visited them. Behold, I will visit upon you the evil of your doings, saith the Lord. And I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all countries whither I have driven them, and will bring them again to their foals, and they shall be fruitful and increase. Now notice here a slap at the false doctrine of the libertarian free will, and that God's just standing there watching People do whatever they want to do, but He has nothing to do with it. Here we see that God rebukes the false shepherds and accuses them of scattering His flock and driving them away. And He's going to punish them for it. They're going to be responsible for it. But it turns out they were His tools, His means, by which He scattered, He drove the flock into far countries. And the Lord intends to bring them back. So that the Lord takes credit for, you see, or designed or purposed that these wicked shepherds should do this. Why? Because the people of Israel were in rebellion against God. They had to be punished. They had to be judged. And so they were. They were punished and judged by the will of God, but at the hands of wicked men. And God holds those men responsible for what they did because they did what they wanted to do, even though they were the instruments by which He accomplished the things that He purposed. And this is a theme all through the Scriptures. It was a theme in Job, if you will remember, that Satan went out and plagued Job. But Job understood that this was the Lord's doing, ultimately. And the Lord agreed with him. So that the Scriptures teach us that God ordains and designs the things that come to pass and He holds accountable wicked men who act in a wicked manner and violate His commandments even though they are accomplishing His purposes. These sheep who have been scattered whom the Lord will bring back together. He will set up shepherds over them which shall feed them and they shall fear no more, neither be dismayed, neither shall they be lacking, saith the Lord. Then look at how He 
then slides right ever so effortlessly over into a discussion of the need of His people for righteousness. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper. This is a prophetic reference used in several places to refer to Messiah, the Lord Jesus, and shall execute justice and judgment in the earth. In his days Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely, and this is his name whereby he shall be called the Lord our righteousness. The implicit answer to the question, if Messiah comes and reigns and is righteous and executes judgment and justice, well then how's He going to save His people? Because we're all run afoul of God's righteousness and justice. And the last thing we need from a physical human point of view is a king that comes in and rules in perfect judgment and justice because we'll all be cut down in the face of such a king. But here's the answer, you see. The answer is that the name by which this great Messiah King will be called is the Lord our righteousness. You see, He clothes His people whom He will rescue and redeem with His own righteousness so that their crimes, you see, are taken away, are not held against them. The basis for judgment of the wicked versus the salvation and peace for the Lord's people are the matter of His name, whereby He shall be called the Lord our righteousness. So you see that even resorting to the metaphor of the sheep and the shepherd that God so often does, does not in any way overthrow, uncouple, or disturb the reality of the truth that the Lord's people are guilty of their sin, that the sin of the Lord's people is portrayed in a compassionate way as sheep going astray, but nevertheless, they're responsible for their sin. But the Lord has mercy and He saves them and He appoints a good shepherd to protect and keep them and He provides for them a righteousness to take away and to cover their ungodliness. The scattering of the flock, you see, ultimately leads to the flock's salvation by the righteousness of Christ. Now Jesus, of course, repeatedly embraced this metaphor to describe His saving of His people. In Mark 6, at verse 34, we read, And Jesus, when He came out, saw much people and was moved with compassion toward them, because they were as sheep, not having a shepherd. And He began to teach them many things. So He uses this metaphor of sheep not having a shepherd, therefore wandering and lost and isolated and alone and in danger and unable to defend themselves. And then in Luke chapter 15, we read this Lord's Day, then drew near him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. So here are these sinful people, and there are these self-righteous people criticizing these sinful people and criticizing the Lord Jesus for entertaining these sinful people. And so he tells them a parable in which he embraces this shepherd-sheep metaphor 
What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness, and go after that which is lost until he find it? And when he hath found it, he layeth it on his shoulders rejoicing. When he cometh home, he calleth together his friends and neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth more than over ninety and nine just persons that need no repentance. Note carefully Christ's gentle reference to the sinners who must be rescued by their shepherd. The Pharisees want to pound on the table and denounce how wicked these people are. But instead, Jesus diverts them over into this kindly metaphor of sheep who have gone astray, who have wandered off and become lost, and the shepherd going out to find them and rejoicing when he does so. The Pharisees in their self-righteousness want to focus on the malignant evil of the sheep. But not so the Lord Jesus. He focuses on the compassion of the shepherd to find and rescue the poor lost sheep. Here the sheep are in the wrong, and yet Christ speaks of them kindly and comfortably, not like the wicked self-righteous Pharisees do. Well, this must have enraged the Pharisees even more that Jesus should speak tenderly towards sinners. The outrage of it. Why, they hadn't done any of the hard work necessary to be made righteous like they had. That was their attitude. So this comfort that the Lord Jesus has for His people, which He embraces from the Old Testament metaphor, which is so richly developed, is a comfort to the Lord's people. This is one of the chief principal ways in which He views His people who have gone astray, like His sheep who need to be rescued. And this is a comforting and hopeful and loving way in which the Lord Jesus looks towards the good of His people. Well, next Lord's Day we'll have more to say about this particular comforting metaphor. But it is at the Lord's table that we celebrate how Jesus laid down His life for His people. And of course, this will be more clearly defined next Lord's Day as we finish up this discussion of the comfortable metaphor, the comforting metaphor of Christ being the good shepherd of His sheep. But the Lord Jesus laid down His life for us on the cross in the place of His sheep that we might be saved. And He went to the cross as a quiet lamb who didn't object. And that in itself is an amazing thing and a startling thing. And yet, He clearly knew what He was doing because He set forth this celebration beforehand so that it might not be gainsaid that he was snuck up on or boxed into a corner or painted into a trap or whatever the case might be, but that he deliberately went to the cross to take away our sin, to be punished for our crimes, 
He gave his body to be mutilated as a sacrifice, as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And he poured out his blood. That is, he laid down his life for the forgiveness of our sin. Thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift to us. Well, let's give thanks for the bread first that pictures the body of Christ broken for us. O oh God, our Father, we rejoice in the kindness that You've shown us, in Your goodness towards us. You've been so good to us. And yet, sometimes we complain. Some people even have left the faith because they claim that they got no comfort from God. And yet, You have comforted us in an astounding way by taking away our sin, by reconciling us to Yourself by setting us at peace with You when we had no right to have peace, but we ought to have had the sword and anger and wrath and destruction. But You made peace with us by the blood of the Lamb. And we give You the praise for this feast He left us to call our attention to the body that He had that was broken for us. A body made like our body. He took on Himself our flesh so that He would have a body in which He could be offered as a sacrifice for the taking away of our sin. Bless us as we partake of this bread, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. The Scriptures tell us on the night our Lord was betrayed that He took the bread and He blessed it and He broke it. And He said, Take and eat. This is My body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. Let's give thanks for the cup that pictures the blood of the Lord Jesus shed to make atonement for us. I'd like to ask my father if he'd give thanks for the cup. And the Scriptures tell us after that he had supped, he took the cup and he blessed it. And he said, Drink ye all of it. This cup is the new covenant in my blood for the remission of sin. Do it as often as ye do it in remembrance of me. Scriptures tell us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do preach the Lord's death till He comes. Let's stand and sing number 116 in the black book. Praise ye the Lord again, again. The Spirit strikes the cord, nor toucheth He our hearts in vain. We praise, we praise the Lord. Rejoice in Him again, again. The Spirit speaks the Word, and faith takes up the happy strain our joy is in the Lord, number 116.